1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Richard Morton Jack. Okay, Richard, tell us the story about how you came to write this book and what part Nick Drake's family
1: play in it. Um Well, I've known Callie, who Callie Callum, who manages Nick's estate for a long time as a friend. He's a fellow hopeless record collector. And um He and Gabrielle, Nick's sister, have always had a fairly clear policy that they won't endorse any recreation of Nick's life on stage or on film, etc. And they, as a way of trying to present all the material that they had, but didn't want to just open up to a film or whatever it might be, about ten years ago put together a brilliant book of their own called Remembered for a While, which is a, it's a bit more than a scrapbook, but it's a non-linear presentation of all sorts of aspects of Nick's life. And I helped with that quite closely. And my feeling as soon as I saw the finished book, well, I'd thought it as I was working on it, but as soon as I saw the finished book, I thought this really needs to be a narrative as well for people who would find his story interesting. Um, and I said this to Gabrielle, and she said to me that if I wrote it, she'd be happy to let me do it. So that was the beginning of it, um, and uh, I went through all of the stuff that they had and evaluated it, but with the huge bonus of being able to say to her, what's this piece of paper? I was in her house, and, and, and being able to um, contextualise every little oddment um, right. with other things, and having her saying, no, that was the local... GP or whatever it might have been um a name or a scrap of uh, a hotel address and so um it was a really useful being able to pick her brain and I think she accepted um slightly despite herself because she's always been very protective of of Nick and of not wanting to seem to be up on high telling everyone else what is or isn't true she she accepts that there is no one Nick um, but she became increasingly aware that there were false narratives circulating about him yeah there were lots him. of mis- misconceptions about him that you wanted yes. to, to, what
2: sort of things did you so, want some to some
1: of them are misconceptions yeah. and some of them are um, very unpleasant slurs yeah. um, so um, what kind he, of things he, did you want to rectify um, well he was a heroin addict is one of the stories that circulates he was obviously must have been abused as a child because why would he write songs like that <laughs> And he went to prep school and boarding schools, so clearly that must have happened, and uh, his parents were uh, aggressively opposed to his pursuing music and did whatever they could to prevent him from um, you know that career path. I think there were various factual errors as well which are neither here nor there really but cumulatively they distort the image, the, 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 the truth of it and because Nick is such an enigmatic person I think Gabrielle and Callie realised that at least they could get the facts straight and people can infer what right. they will from, from a correct version of what, what is known Um so that was where I came in with Gabrielle and and, and so she was very happy to sort of set things straight and so on, but without pretending to be an oracle herself.
0: So give us a quick idea of the family. We're looking at a picture of the you know childhood the picture of the family now. What you know, give us an idea of what they were all about.
1: Well they were a very unusual family for their time, um, I think, from all that I've been told, because they were both outwardly conventional and inwardly quite unconventional. Um, there are lots of superficial assumptions that of course we all make about the past um, and I think one of them is that it was quite stolid and that there wasn't much affection and warmth between parents and children in black and white photos always look a little bit grim <laughs> or often do and, <laughs> and actually the Drakes were, were a very conventionally um, happy family with uh, nice parents and nice children and thank you letters and good manners and punctual mealtimes and all this sort of stuff but beyond that there was a lot of artistic emphasis within the family that was even unknown to close friends of theirs or they might vaguely have understood that the drakes quite like recording songs that they wrote and but there wasn't i think a full understanding until much more recently of quite what an well, artistic M- molly's some
2: records and molly's recordings her real to real recordings came out didn't they yes exactly
1: yeah. um so there was a and Nick's mother, although she wasn't herself depressive, as far as I'm aware, had a considerable streak of existential pity in her. And, and she understood that life wasn't all a bed of roses. And I think it's easy to look at her and assume she was just this perfect housewife. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how she, to an extent, presented herself to their circle. Um, And I think it staggered quite a lot of Nick's friends latterly to realise that she was this fountain of existential songs and poetry, um, as Mark says, that surfaced more recently. And Rodney Drake was an engineer, so he had a slightly more precise and um, factual mind, but he had a great sympathy for the arts and for... And, of course, the sister was an actress as well. Absolutely,
0: It's an interesting kind of uh, corrective to the, the normal way that music biographies tend to work is that... Is he, it starts with a family and one member of the family is really interesting and the other ones are just supporting characters. You yes. know what I mean? For the rest of the story. Whereas this story, is a, it's about all of them really, isn't
1: it? Yes. Although I, I was lucky enough to have access to information about all of them, which, yeah. which rounds out the picture because I think, I, I recently read Mick Jagger's brother's memoir, which is quite an interesting book. But Joe, their father, was a really interesting man. Yes. And I just assumed he was a, PE teacher, a bit of a martinet, you know, whatever you might see in a random article. But actually reading Mick's brother talking about him, you realise that Mick didn't come out of nowhere. This was a very broad-minded, interesting family. Yeah. And I'm sure the same goes for most rock stars' families. There's more Absolutely. to it than uh...
0: so. So moving on to... So Nick goes to Marlborough School, College, whatever yeah. we call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and is he, is he continuing to be the kind of you know, normal young chap that that might have been expected
1: at the time, or is he starting to show any signs of being different? Well, Nick was really fortunate. One of lots of strokes of good luck that he had in life, obviously he also had terrible bad luck later on, but one of the many little strokes of luck he had was that when he arrived at Marlborough um, in January 1962, he... Coincided with a new headmaster who was progressive. And so the public schools in those days were still quite oppressive and quite Victorian in certain ways. But they had this new headmaster called John Dancy who was uh, progressive. So he relaxed hair regulations. He got rid of fagging. He got rid of corporal punishment. He made chapel voluntary. Little things that that showed more sympathy to what were starting to be recognised as teenagers rather than just young mm. people who were going to start.
2: Because he'd been quite conventional
1: before that, hadn't he, really? I mean, sort of very, you know, I think was he was yes. a boy
2: of his first school. He was head boy of
1: his first school, was and, so- his yeah. first school and, and, and was an outwardly golden child. That's right. Um, it's lovely to
0: read yeah. the thank you letters all the way through this book.
1: You know, the, yes, the people, well, there's... The way
0: people used to correspond in those days. is should be a lesson to us all. <laughs>
1: So um, so Marlborough wasn't an oppressive environment that Nick had to rebel against. Um, and also the obvious thing was that music started becoming much more important to young people, um, as of the late 50s, obviously. And, and um, Nick was right there when, when things really started hotting up with Beatlemania during his first year there, and, and then um, onwards into the American folk revival, Dylan, etc. And um, one of the little discoveries that I made, I mean, it's nothing earth-shattering, but I was quite amused by it, was there's been this assumption that Nick learnt all of these quite obscure American blues and folk songs by haunting Doebells and um, collets or whatever and, 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 you know, buying folkways, imports and so on. But I knew that those records were really esoteric then and really hard to get and very unlikely that a 14-, 15-year-old schoolboy was going to have... This incredible blues record collection of Lo and behold, almost every single one of these songs that Nick recorded in the early days of his singer, you know, singing and playing guitar, are on Peter Paul and Mary albums. Yes. <laughs> um, Nobody talks about no, that. Manfred no. Mann. Man, you big don't get any roots well. points <laughs> for talking about Peter Paul and Mary, do you? No. <laughs> so it made perfect sense to me. They were doing the uh, the hard work, and he was just singing effectively Peter Paul and Mary songs, um, as were obviously. You know, millions of and kids they, all over Europe.
0: people yeah. are Mary all, all over the television, weren't they? They were, yeah. they were huge. They were, but they were square, the weren't they? They were right. really square, definitely, red, definitely, yeah. definitely. So he goes
1: to Cambridge. Yes, he, he, he was absolutely squished into Cambridge. I, I think he must have been, even by the standards of that, his day, when it was a bit easier to get in if you had the right connections and the right background... Um, he was probably the least qualified Cambridge undergraduate of his generation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was an
2: exceptional croquet
1: player, wasn't he? So he was very of, good that at croquet. Might I, I don't mean that as an insult to his mind. Obviously, he had a very interesting mind. But in terms of his achievements versus some very hard-working person from... A less privileged background who might have wanted his place there's little sympathy for for the way that he was got into Cambridge looking back on it 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 was all done on a handshake and a wink between people who had uh, access to places at Cambridge but the great thing is that Nick did go to Cambridge from a from yeah the uh, looking at it with with hindsight because cambridge so informed his work not only as an influence on on his songs and on the atmosphere of his songs but because he had the time and the space to write them i mean reading english then perhaps now but certainly then at, at cambridge was just a laugh. So he's, really... he just sat in his room basically and played songs. Twenty yeah. minutes of "Tess of the D'Urbervilles." So exactly. Then they'd, they'd
2: start tuning up and
1: just T- yeah. So you could turn up heat as much as you wanted, obviously. And there were highly thoughtful and inter- interesting um, undergraduates who were very focused on on the subject. I don't mean to belittle it, but from Nick's perspective, obviously, you can copy something out of a book and cobble it together and not get in trouble in a way you couldn't with philosophy or science or medicine or whatever so nick had this golden ticket basically he was at cambridge he was amongst pretty interesting people a lot of whom were like-minded and he was able to write songs he had a lot of time on his hands and a very supportive group of friends there who all thought he was great and started
2: playing and working in a duo didn't he i think around that time
1: well with robert kirby who 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 he met um in his second term who was nick Nick knew he wanted his songs to be arranged Um, joe boyd he he met in the january of his first year so after his first term and joe had just heard the songs of leonard cohen which was hot off the presses in america but joe had a copy over here and joe said to Nick, listen to this, I think strings might go well. with, and, and that absolutely rang a bell with Nick because he had a very strong interest in classical music anyway. And Nick could read music and could play classical instruments. So, um, so Nick got back to Cambridge and thought, I need to find someone who can write some arrangements with me. And we can, not necessarily to the point where we're going to record them, but um, work together on, on seeing, just experimenting. And Joe had said to Nick take time I think you're great but you're not ready to make an album yet and I think one of the things that I'm really grateful to Joe for as, as far as Nick goes is that um, this was an era when singer-songwriter albums were coming out quite thick and fast yep. and Nick was really good there was no sense in which he was sort of maybe worth taking a punt on because he might get quite good in a few months time I and mean, Nick was obviously very good straight away by, the, by 1968 he already had an album's worth of pretty solid songs Joe really easily could have just stuck Nick in front of a microphone and said boom two two hour sessions maybe get a bit of cello or something banged onto that and that's the album and lots of albums were made like that at that time and Nick could have plausibly made a perfectly good not particularly brilliant album straight away and Joe said no let's wait let's take time let's give it a year Let you can come you can go we'll come to Sound Techniques whenever you're ready we'll fit you in we'll put you together with some other people Joe sort of heard it all in his head straight away and I think that was another big stroke of luck for Nick
0: Let's talk about some of the other musicians that he, he encountered so he, he was spending a lot of time travelling wasn't he and vacations and so forth spending a lot of time in France and he ends up in Morocco at one stage, doesn't he? he meets the Rolling Stones.
1: Tell yeah. I, I, I think there's... Uh, one of the assumptions people have made about Nick is that he was always um, antisocial and sitting in a room feeling sorry for himself. And, and, alas, that did become the case latterly, but he was a perfectly outward-facing teenager, a, a little bit on the reticent side, but so are lots of people. Um, so, yes, he was a curious traveller and he backpacked um, as a schoolboy around Europe and had the usual disasters and adventures. And um, as soon as he left school, he wanted to go to Africa, and that all fell apart because um, there, there was political difficulties and, and uh, in Kenya where he wanted to go. So this plan was sort of retrofitted that he'd have to go to the University of Aix, Marseille, to study French which was bizarrely part of the requirement of his Cambridge degree was that you had to do a French translation paper so off went Nick there but it was a bit of a repository for kids who had nothing better to do Um, this bogus course which no one checked up on Um, but as soon as Nick went there he he pootled off to Africa almost immediately Um, and that must have been his plan I don't know that but clearly Nick must have agreed to go to X on the basis that it was quite near to Morocco Um, and Off he went within about three weeks of arriving in X and uh, had a brilliant time. It really opened up his mind, as it would to any young person, um, but it also um, informed his guitar playing. And and the the postcards he sent home, he he talks about the sights and the smells and so on, but it's really the sounds. But it's the confidence of, of, of
2: selling himself to the Stones, isn't it? Of actually sort of... Going to, to meet them yes. saying, this saying, you've got to hear my music, and he plays. Yes,
1: he, he, he had a, the good fortune to be amongst a, a gang, one of whom was particularly confident and outgoing, who basically forced Nick on the stones. So I think without that friend, Nick probably would have been a bit more reticent, slash wouldn't in a million years have gone near them. But I do think it's instructive that Nick was willing to perform in front of not only Mick and Keith but also Brian and Cecil Beaton and um, you know Stash and uh, whoever else was in that entourage uh, Michael Cooper yeah, lots yeah, yeah. of fairly terrifyingly hip people that, that's all wearing... a microcosm of Swinging London isn't it yeah. in, in a room all bombed out of their minds yeah. but uh, wearing ridiculous medieval clothes with sort of yeah. wolf furs and God knows what yeah. just like the in a, yeah, the gatefold for Beggar's Banquet. Okay, so that must go- have been the scene. And Nick was sort of like shoved into the room with his guitar, but played and sang, and by all accounts, was complimented, and Mick said to him, come and see us when you're back in London, which I don't know if Nick did or attempted to, and Mick was in jail when Nick came back to London anyway, so that was the end of that. But, yes, I, I think it, yeah, it, it's quite a good corrective to the assumption that Nick it's, never it's, had any cojones.
2: No-one ever thought of him as being self-promotional. I mean, yeah. th- we'll get on to this later, but it is interesting.
1: I want to talk, talk about the... Um, there aren't that many
0: pictures of Nick Drake, most of them taken by Keith Morris, I think. Mm. Uh, and yet... The visual image of Nick Drake seems to be one of the most powerful things about him,
1: would you say yeah i, th- I think the the extent to which Nick 's physical appearance informs and did inform in his lifetime people 's response to him is 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 quite important um, to acknowledge um, Obviously he was a very striking looking bloke um, and carried himself in a, in a, in a self contained r- r- one of those people who was probably conspicuous because he was so unostentatious. And um, I think, yeah, his images are... The, the images we have of him are very um, powerful. Um, and, yeah, partly it's because there aren't a huge number of them. Although, to be accurate, there are a huge number of them. They're just all quite similar to each other. Yes. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if only there were more in different contexts. Um, but but I think, um, yeah, Nick, Nick's uh, image is, is really strong. And it's a bit like his early death. It's quite hard to unpick how important those things have been in, in the way that he's been picked up on since his death.
0: Do you think also that... Um, um, A lot of his mystique, or his continuing appeal, owes a lot to the fact that we have no recordings of him talking.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com
1: people today. Uh, well, very few. Um, uh, I'll do it. But okay. certainly no, no footage of him as an adult, I think, is the big one. The only footage of him is of him as a toddler um, and a newborn because, because again, this is, the, this
0: is such a rare thing nowadays, isn't it? In our culture, the idea that
1: yes. anybody we'd be bothered about, that we can't look at them
0: moving about.
1: No, absolutely. And, and I think it would be completely wonderful if footage of Nick did surface, but at the same time it would, to an extent, perhaps demystify him. It they would wouldn't like him So, <laughs> No. Um, and uh, occasionally people... Nick, again, one of the many little things which I find bring him to life for me, Nick was quite keen on Humble Pie... Um, the Band. The band, yeah. Yes. Why wouldn't he be? Great <laughs> right band. Right. Um, so there's not very Nick Drake-like yeah. at all. No, but um, <laughs> again, this is undermining his image. It's so would be, be very I careful there more <laughs> about that. Um them. you'll never sell another record. Nick was a great fan of headphones, of listening to music on cans, and he used to say to friends, yeah, lots of his friends remember him saying, Listen to this, it's yeah, this amazing. And the two things that friends of his because whenever the people tell me things like that, when I was working on the book, I'd say to them, well, give me an example. And the two songs that people, his friends remember him saying, you've got to listen to this, were Song for Our Ancestors by the Steve Miller Band, which obviously is designed for amazing, trippy stereo when you're stoned. And um, Shaky Jake off the self-titled Humble Pie album, which is just a <laughs> ballsy rock and roll song. <laughs> and uh, why wouldn't he like it? You know, I, I, I think There's another it, brilliant
2: detail in the book about him listening to music with headphones on, where he, he does it with his hand on the telephone because he doesn't want to miss a telephone call because actually he was really sociable in the early days. Yeah. Which he didn't realise.
0: He was so desperate not to, to not be able to hear the telephone. He'd have his hand yeah, on Yeah, he wanted, wanted to, to have cake and eat it. it. Yeah. There's a lot of speculation about uh, whether Nick Drake had a love life or mm. not. But he did, didn't he? And you, we're looking here at the picture of, uh, of one of his old girlfriends that, yeah. that you talked to for the book. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I think it's, again, been assumed that Nick was asexual or gay. Um, and the idea that he was just heterosexual but not massively sexually motivated seems to have been left to one side. And that is what he was as, as far as all the evidence of his friends and of anything else I've I came across shows you know Nick was perfectly interested in relationships with girls as a teenager and so on but unfortunately this curtain came down on so many aspects of his life when he became quite mentally ill and one of the first victims of that was any sort of meaningful relationship let alone with a, a significant other um but in his uh, teens um yeah he he did have this particular girlfriend kirsty um they had a lovely time together and um did everything that young people do romantically and otherwise um and uh you know i'm glad i was glad to talk to her about it and to see that he did have that aspect to his life i think people have to an extent reverse engineered virginity from his music yeah um but yeah nick was perfectly earthy right so Joe Boyd, we we've touched on a
0: bit, you know Joe Boyd of, of the Witch Season Productions label, Fairport Convention, John Martin, all kinds of people, yeah. hugely important person, you know key person mm. in in keeping him on track in doing these these three kind of strangely perfect albums, which are his. Um, his memorial, really, I suppose. Yes. Is Joe surprised by the kind of continuing interest in uh, in Nick
1: Drake? No. Um, But nor is he arrogantly self-satisfied about having perceived that which others didn't. But Joe's feeling about Nick now is exactly what it always was, which is that this guy's great, he can't fail... And Joe's position on it is, it's just taken people a lot longer than I thought it would. But that's yes. an
2: interesting point, because there's quite a bit of that in the book, about people saying to him, Joe among them actually, that he was a bit of a genius. You know, and I wondered if that didn't affect his approach to the way he promoted himself. That if, if he'd been told by enough people that he was fantastically gifted, I think he
1: expected the world to beat a path to his door. Yeah, Would that and, be and true? I don't think that's an unreasonable, yeah. especially when you're young and you don't yeah. realise that the world doesn't necessarily open up to you in the way that you think it will. Yeah. But, but yeah, Nick was told very quickly by everyone, his friends, Joe, yeah. other people he encountered, Mick Jagger, yeah, you're good, yeah, you're, you're seriously yeah, good. Yeah. One of, all of Nick's friends agree that Nick was the best singer-guitarist among them and they all bashed around on guitar, some of them much better than others. Um, but one of Nick's friends, who's very good at the guitar himself, said to me, not only was Nick better than all of us at the guitar, he was better at the guitar than any of us were at anything or had ever met who yeah. <laughs> did yeah. anything well. Um, you know, it was so, he was so obviously out of their league. And Joe recognised this. And so when Joe realised Nick could also write interesting and unusual songs in interesting and unusual tunings and was improving all the while, Joe just thought, well... I've found something completely amazing here.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course, first album comes out, nothing, crickets as far as commercial responses mm. concerned. A few nice reviews. Everybody agrees it's kind of nice, but nobody buys it. Yeah, but also,
2: uh, no promotion really was there. I mean, he had a PR girl, and I think the PR girl said, "Would you like to do some interviews?" He said, "No, thanks." and uh, and so you know yeah, there was an interview with sounds on the second album but i mean at that point no there was and there was no manager and there was no agent and there was no no one really behind him
1: no but I, it, again it's quite easy to reverse engineer things from that because joe had had this amazing global success yeah. with the incredible string band yeah. I'm not saying they had number one hits and Screaming Girls everywhere they went but they were a they re- top ten albums yeah. yes and they, were reco- and they were recognised at the time in Album certain Hall. quarters as being you know, the next big songwriting thing since the Beatles you know, they were taken quite seriously by critics and the times and so on so I think Joe's model seemed to have been quite successful in the past that which season his company did it all in-house and you... But the critical thing that Nick didn't do was get out there and flog up and down the country playing gigs. And um, partly it's because I think he was temperamentally unsuited to it. Partly it's because he quite realistically saw that it was a bit of a waste of his time. Yeah. Um, but I think if you didn't do that in those days, everyone I've spoken to agrees, everyone who worked in the but business... But it all starts it was, really you know, well, doesn't it? You You've got a description of the
2: Festival Hall gig, where I think you're supporting John and Beverly and and Martin, and the Fairport mm. Convention, there's that one as well. And, and those go really well, don't they? And then, and then certain things seem to happen that shake his confidence.
1: Yes, I think the Fairport gig that, that you can see the small ad for on the screen now was in a sense unfortunate because Fairport had had this terrible crash in May of 69 and had regrouped with a new drummer and this was their first proper concert. They'd done a warm-up, you know, but this was their first big concert and there was an enormous sense of support in the audience, which Joe and others remember. It It wasn't your normal gig with people milling around and drinking and chatting and tolerating the support act, waiting for the main act. It was a reverential atmosphere because they understood the emotional charge of the evening. And I think Nick, who was very nervous, it was the first big concert he'd ever played, um, went on stage with that hush, with that sort of willingness to give him a go uh, for the audience to listen properly to him. And um, that wasn't a realistic experience.
0: No, right. Never going to happen again, no, is it? Right. Because you recount stories of him playing the strangest gigs. He plays a, a kind of engineers engineering company's party at a rugby club a rugby somewhere club. In, in, yeah.
1: in Warwickshire, doesn't he? How, yeah. how
2: did that happen? You'd think somebody... Sort of...
1: Nick had a great mate at Cambridge called Marcus Bicknell, who was one of several people important people who immediately recognised his talent. Marcus was a musician and a music scholar himself at Cambridge and and he he could tell that Nick was great. So he wanted to help Nick and he was part of that gang at Cambridge anyway. So when he left Cambridge himself, um, he went to work for a live promoter in London, um, Terry King. And um, one of his briefs as a lowly agent in this sort of grubby soho office was filling up bills at working men's clubs in the midlands that was just one of the things they did i've got just the perfect guy for you (laughs) and um usually tell some mother-in-law jokes (laughs) right so usually it was 50s rock and roll type acts the wild angels that sort of thing Yeah, yeah but um occasionally there'd be another spot on the bill. And and Marcus, as a favour to Nick, as his mate, would say to him, look, this is going to be horrible, but you'll get 20 quid, and it might be a bit of a laugh, and are you up for it? And so Nick, in the Christmas of 1969, did about three or four of these working men's gigs, and according to Marcus, they were a laugh. There was one, Genesis, who had released their first album and were in uh, flux, Um, were also on the books of this agency, and would do gigs with Nick and there was one gig at a working men's club in the Midlands where Nick and Genesis were on the bill and Genesis skinheads invaded sort of through the fire doors and Genesis had to play the hokey-cokey for go. about 20 minutes at the threat of having Peter their heads Gabriel kicked Gabriel with in. a giant floral headdress <laughs> right. on so, so, I think this false narrative has arisen that Nick was yeah. put in for these completely inappropriate gigs, and little wonder that he hated performing. But the reality was that he, was, he went into those with his eyes open, and people, one or two people have said, oh, he played three or four songs and then left the stage, as yeah. if, but that was all he was meant to do, 10 right. minutes. We must ask you about Francois Hardy, who
2: appears three times in the book, and just, just tell us the story of, of his. Well, he was it's obsessed. It's sort of an obsession, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. To... Again, understandable, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, of yeah. course, that's to one, uh, yeah, she was like Bardot, wasn't she? She yeah. occupied a very special, exotic cachet for yeah, yeah. Yeah, that generation. But she, to her great credit, somehow encountered Five Leaves Left quite quickly in the autumn of 69 and thought it was great and name dropped it here and there. And Joe and the lady who ran the publishing in hi- for, for, for him. Um, were obviously always alert to any possible support that for any of their artists from an uh, you know an unlikely quarter that could be helpful so they set up a meeting between Nick and Francoise on the basis that maybe she'd record one of his songs and indeed she was in the habit of recording songs by up-and-coming songwriters and all sorts so Nick and Joe and a Friend of well another producer called Tony Cox because Joe's plate was already too full. So Joe said to Tony Cox, "Well, maybe you can come and we'll see what happens here. Maybe we can make an album with her, or maybe we can work something out." So off they went to Paris. But unfortunately, Nick kept his trap firmly shut during the meeting, and um, nothing came of it. But this this was in April May of 1970. By which time, although no one realised it, not a soul things were starting to go quite badly wrong in Nick's head um, so outwardly people were expecting him still to be the 1969 Nick but over the course of 1970 things started going quite badly awry with him and this is one of the sort of obvious signs of it to me that he sat during this meeting with her completely silently and Joe was just thinking what the hell we've flown to Paris to sell you here you've got to infuse. you've got to have some sort of engagement um, So nothing came of it but as Nick's illness progressed um, he fixated on the idea of working with or for or writing something or recording something for with Francoise and and it's rather poignant um, putting it together and seeing the way that at his very lowest ebbs, he had suddenly tried to go off to Paris to see her again and to knock on her door or to go to a session of hers when she was in London. And she obviously represented something to him. And it was far more than him just fancying her or being tongue-tied by her fame. I think she was the closest he had come to a mainstream artist taking a strong interest in him. And I think he thought she was one of the keys that might unlock the door again. And... um, at the very end of his life he was in Paris um, and the lady on whose houseboat he was staying who hasn't spoken to anyone about Nick until I spoke to her, the first thing she said to me was, oh, he was always saying that he wanted to talk to Francois Hardy and he he had to meet her and that that was the whole reason that he... So she obviously represented something very important to him but he didn't articulate it and nothing ever happened and she is as baffled as anyone by it.
0: Right. How many people do you talk to in the course of doing this book? Uh, well, a, a couple of hundred.
1: Really? Yeah, getting on for a couple of hundred.
0: Right. And were, were there people who, who, who thought about him a lot in the in the 40, 50 years or were there, were there people who hadn't?
1: Well, of course, the most valuable people to talk to are the people who come to it completely cold. Um, there was one chap that he went to Morocco with um, who I spoke to, and, and I said, I just want to talk to you about Nick Drake. And he said, who? And I said, Nick Drake? And he said, I don't know anyone called Nick Drake. Sorry, how did you get my number? You know, and I said, um, you, you travelled to Morocco with him, and he played the guitar, and he was tall, and he said, oh, yeah, I remember, oh, Nick, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. And I said, um, well, he became quite a famous person, and he died, yeah, oh, that's sad. What, uh, uh, t- anyway, he had, so his memories, when they started coming back, were completely fresh and, and completely credible, whereas stories get worn in the this telling, obviously, it's and it's um, it's end up, obviously, for, for very understandable reasons, people um, forget what is or isn't the actual
0: truth And I of suppose something. it must have been particularly difficult to, to tell this chap that he became famous years after he died.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's even it was more such f- an unusual thing, isn't it? Curious. It? And, and, and this chap, as a footnote said to me oh and I recorded Nick playing for the Rolling Stones I had that tape for ages but I threw it away and I, and I was like what?
0: Oh, <laughs> but Can you he was
1: imagine? Like, Why would I possibly have kept it you know in the 1990s he what, just did a clear was out.
2: It? It was, what was it then that, that's a brought about there was, a, there was a radio documentary wasn't there with Brad Pitt in 2004 and then there was a Volkswagen commercial I mean, Yes I think
1: was... there's been a sort of steadily radiating interest and there's this magic trick has somehow happened with nick that there's an assumption still amongst people that he's a cult artist and that he's yes but i mean he isn't he is as famous as neil young or bob dylan to people who like that sort of music he's as familiar a name and an image and and um his body of work is much smaller but I think people who come to Nick's work for the first time now still feel that they've discovered someone obscure, and I'm not quite sure how that works. I think it's to do with the intimacy of his
2: yes, music
1: and the, the private relationship people form with it quite, quite quickly. But, um, but yes, he, he is not, I would say, an obscure or cult artist now. Uh, I, he's, he's not Bob Dylan, that was an exaggeration, but he's far from... You know, people
0: like to say that. They like to say, you've probably never heard of him, but you know, it's right. Nick Drake or whatever. You yeah. know, they, would, they would hate to think that he was yeah, really, really famous. fed up when you have heard of him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it's an, ex- it's an extraordinary story and I thought I knew a certain amount about him but nothing compared to, to what I learned in reading this book, which apart from anything else, as I think I've told you before, is one of the things I love about it is it, it summons up London in the late 60s and early 70s when people it took three buses to go around to people's houses to listen to records or whatever and uh, you know nobody had a mobile phone or even a phone in their home Um, it it summons that up absolutely brilliantly I
1: think it's a remarkable piece of work oh well thank you Nick Nick I think for me that the really important thing that I hope comes across in the book is that Nick was a real person he wasn't an iconic shadowy unreal figure you know he he ate he drank he slept he had relationships he laughed at Benny Hill and some others do have him quite a lot um <laughs> you know he he, he he participated in the world in the way that we all do and I think to be able to put more flesh onto those bones was was my task that's how I saw it and to make him into a real person for people rather than this sort of wraith that has somehow been assumed that he was. Well, you certainly did that. Thanks
0: for talking to us about it. Richard Moulton-Jack. This podcast is brought to you by The Word.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.